0: We will begin at um, where we left off, Job 6 and 15. My brethren have dealt deceitfully as a brook. And then 21. For now ye are nothing. Ye see my casting down and are afraid. And I talked about that. So he's saying you're betraying me you think you're helping but you're betraying me and 27 yea you overwhelm the fatherless and you dig a pit for your friend why is job fatherless metaphorically why does he feel fatherless he isn't really he feels that his father God has abandoned him. He feels alone. Does God ever do that? Allow us to feel alone? Calvary. In many ways, Job is a Christ figure, sacrifices for his children, etc. Okay. So Job continues, trying to help them understand what he's going through. And it's tough. Here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, my days are going to be short. My flesh is clothed with worms and clouds of dust. Skin is broken. He's reading in a bad way. Therefore, I will not refrain my mouth. This is seven eleven. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. He gets to talk. The slave is the one who can't talk. He's not that. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And then he says, starts on 12, into a fairly controversial passage. Am I a sea or a whale that thou settest to watch over me? When I say, my bed shall comfort me, my couch shall ease my complaint, then thou scarest me with dreams and terrifiest me through visions. One of the reasons I have you look at this in your own Bible and not in the Norton Anthology is that at this point there's a footnote in the Norton anthology which says job now speaking to God claims that God is setting a watch over him if there were no such footnote how would you know where is it in the text that says moreover Job spake to God and said. There isn't any. He's clearly talking to his friends in chapter 6 and it looks as though he's continuing to talk to his friends in chapter 7 and then suddenly 12 seems to many commentators to be a turn and he's speaking to God but there's no textual evidence Let's recognize the other possibility. Whom else could he be talking to when he says, Am I a sea or a whale that thou settest a watch over me? To whom else might he be talking? I'm getting no eye contact from anybody. Well, a couple of brave souls. There's only one other possibility. If it isn't God, who is it? His friends. His friends, Caitlin. Sure, they've been sitting there for seven days, looking at him. Isn't that kind of like setting a watch over him? Now they've been, they've done a good thing, but now he's saying, "And when my bed shall comfort me, and my couch shall ease my complaint, then thou scarest me with dreams." If he's not talking to God, whom could he be talking to? And how do you know? Ah, Caitlin again. Eliphaz, because sure. He about his dream. Eliphaz has given this dream. So it's entirely possible, in the absence of any transition that says, now Job is talking to the Lord, it's not here that he just continues talking to his friends. And he says, you're scaring me with dreams, Eliphaz. And even watching me, let me alone. And then he says in 17, something that works very well if he's talking to his friends. What is man that thou shouldest magnify him, and that thou should set thy heart upon him? that thou shouldst visit him every morning and try him every moment. How long wilt thou not depart from me, nor let me alone, till I swallow down my spittle? Yes, you could read this as talking to God, but does it apply to the friends too? If so, how? Visit him every morning, try him every... Who's trying him? Is God accusing him of, of wrongdoing? No, his friends are. They're putting him on trial. Which he should not they should not do. I have sinned, he says that, perhaps sarcastically if he's talking to his friends. What shall I do unto thee, O thou preserver? of men. The other possibility is observer of men. The Hebrew is a little unclear here. Thou observer of men. Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee? So I am a burden to myself. Now what are they doing? They are telling him that he has a sin that they can't name And he keeps saying, I want to talk to God. And what's their answer? Job wants to talk to God. What's his friend's answer to that? De facto. No? His friend's answer is, talk to us. We'll tell you what's going on. In other words, his friends are standing in place of God. He wants a clear line of sight between himself and God and have a face-to-face conversation with his Lord. And they are jumping into the middle of that and saying, wait a minute, we'll tell you what's going on because we're wise people. Do you see? They're stepping into the middle between him and God. Therefore, they are taking the place of God. Do you see? And now in this reading, Job gets sarcastic. Why dost thou not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall sleep in the dust. If you are going to act like God, then pardon me, which is his job. If you're my friends and you're going to pretend to be God, then be God and pardon me. He knows that God is long-suffering. He knows that God forgives sins. These guys aren't. They're just accusing if you're going to stand in the place of God, then act like God. And this is why he says, What is man that thou magnify him? How are they magnifying man? They are elevating themselves to the status of God, magnifying themselves. What they should be doing is keeping their mouths shut and staying humble in the face of this awful stuff that's going on to Job. Is that making sense? Because there is no textual evidence that he's talking to God, it is entirely possible, and I think likely, that he's talking to his friends in all of this. Go. My question is, in my version, and I don't have a KJV, um, the "thou" is always capitalized, which would lend you to think. Which version is that? This is uh, the New American American Standard. Standard. Does it do that in the KJV? Well, no, but the King, James, the King James does a different thing. Um, but they are operating on that same theory. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yes, that's a very widespread theory, and I am presenting a counter-theory. Right. That's all. Right. Again, a theory. I do not look at you and say, this is how it must be, because it doesn't have to. But my point is, and in fact I talked at one point when I recognized this, I went to a Job scholar on campus who was here then, and I said here's my theory you know the the the, uh, original Hebrew text you've done a lot of research and scholarly stuff on Job. Am I all wet? Does the text as I have interpreted it, does the text bear the interpretation I've put on it? That he's not talking at this point to anybody but his friends and he took a long time and then he said yeah yeah, the te- the text the text would support that, but I don't believe it. Okay, what you believe is your business, but there is. It seems to me that Job, particularly here, when he says, "Why don't you pardon my transgression?" is being sarcastic. And the problem is that Bildad cuts him off and says, how long will you speak these things? Does God pervert judgment? Bildad thinks he's talking to God. He doesn't get it. You know how frustrating that is? I was once in a heated debate at Collegedale Church with people who believed very differently from the way I did. And finally, in, in desperation... I said, okay, if we follow your thinking to its logical conclusion, here's where we wind up. And it's a, it was a terrible idea. I said, just follow that along, what you're saying, and here's where we wind up. And it's awful. And the guy exploded and accused me of advocating the position that I had just said his, the awful position I had just had his thinking would lead to right over his head the sarcasm the attack didn't work at all because he was I don't know too dull to realize what I just said and self-righteously he comes back at me and says you can't possibly believe that that's a terrible thing to say how can you possibly say something like that about God and so I lost that argument not because I was wrong but because the opposition was so obtuse here is Bildad if I'm right and Job is simply talking to his friends and as though mockingly as though they were God sarcastically as though they were God then Bildad's answer is just excruciating does God pervert judgment? No, you schlub, you do! I like the literature there better because of what's happened to me. (coughs) Once again, it's a matter capable of debate, but I present this side as what I think is the better choice. Yes, Becky. Because, first of all, there's no textual evidence that he is talking to God. That's a figment of somebody's imagination. One. Two. He, he's he's obviously talking to someone who's is or is acting godlike. So you got this other choice. For me, this is better because here we have this fine sarcasm, which goes right over the head of Bildad. And so we see Bildad as a maddening schlub. And that's very much in keeping with the the text. This is very much in keeping with with the themes of the book of Job. These guys are maddening schlubs. They they mean well, but they're getting it all wrong, and they're they're trampling. (laughs) Well, if thou wouldst seek unto God between being they He is! seeking to God. Come on, Bildad! That's exactly what he's doing. He wants to talk to God. and These guys are jumping into the place of God. That's maddening for him. And then he goes on with with all sorts of um, all sorts of uh, platitudes which seem to be a good idea to him. Um, So, chapter 9 if I'm right, Job realizes that his sarcasm has not worked. And then it's just gone right over the heads of his friends. And so he speaks now in that case. He speaks wearily, but he's trying to explain so that his friends will understand. Chapter 9. Then Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth. Yes, Yes, all these platitudes you're saying, they're right. But how should a man be just with God? He wants to get to the bigger question. He's way ahead of these guys who think they're teaching him. They don't see anything. He's way ahead of them. How shall a man be just with God? Huge question. Smashes straight into the question. If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. He's wise and hard and mighty in strength. Who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered, which removes the mountains? All chapter nine. Fourteen. How much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him? Of course, Isaiah says, come and let us reason together. But you can't can't go debating with God except by grace. How much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him, whom, though I were righteous, yet I would not answer, but would make supplication to my judge. By the way, Who is our judge? Our judge? Sorry? Our judge? Yes, who is our judge eternally? The Father. Ah, but there are three of them. Which one? Father. Christ? How do you know? I'll say the Father, because like you'd say Christ is like your attorney or your lawyer. What's happening right now? At this moment, in the heavenly sanctuary, what's happening? Come on, you've gone through Adventist schools. You've got to know this stuff. Uh, atonement. Uh, Jesus is pleading our case in the sanctuary right now. It's called, but there's a... He's, he's pleading our case, but he is also... It's called investigative the investigative judgment. And who's conducting that judgment? Christ, the one who died for us. Jesus is my judge. Isn't that good news? Christ conducts the investigative judgment. He looks at your sins and my sins and then pleads with the Father, my blood covers this. No Christian should fear the judgment nobody under grace should fear the judgment we want that because under grace that's vindication for us that may be a new thought think it through christ is our judge makes a huge difference in the whole term judgment when we are wronged and victimized what do we want we want judgment our judgment comes from christ who rescues us from our victimization and through grace saves us that's our judge man is that good news Christ is our judge 21 very important moment verse 21 of chapter 9 though I were perfect He doesn't know whether he's perfect or not. Now, he's been proclaimed so early on. Whether that's true now with all of this is a good good question. But he was perfect at one point because God said so. Though I were perfect, yet would I not know my soul. I would despise my life. Though I were perfect, I would not know my soul. There was a slogan. There was a, uh, a sign engraved on the over the doorway to the Oracle at Delphi, which you've heard of. It says, "Know thyself." Know thyself. You ever tried? Sure somewhere around age 14 or 15 we begin to try and figure ourselves out I'm sure you did it too it's 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 a standard adolescent event we sit there and we say who am I anyhow am I a good person am I a bad person what am I I do these crazy things you remember when you were 15 you were doing nutty things. Adolescents do. Anybody ever taught early teens Sabbath school? They're nuts. But they're also terribly introspective. They're wondering, what about it? And that goes on, 15, 16, maybe 17. But at some point, maybe around age 20, we stop it. We give it up. For me, it was about age 20. I realized that I was never gonna figure myself out by by trying to get inside my brain and look it's like brain surgery done by yourself can't do it and so we give it up as a bad job because what do we find way underneath as we pull it apart and pull it apart like an onion contradictions and get con- you know, all the way down to the bottom of what you find is contradictions you never get away from the contradictions at least that was my experience and i'm led to believe that it's most people's experience and so they quit it and go on though i were perfect yet would i not know my soul hmm the world says that this is wisdom know thyself No, it's an invitation to disaster because you can't figure yourself out so what do we do instead what's the answer the Bible says that it's not our job to know ourselves The Bible says, Know the Lord. Right? Know the Lord. Concentrate on the Lord, not brain surgery. You're on your own. By beholding, we become changed. Beholding what? Christ. Not by introspection. If you haven't noticed that already, I invite you to notice it now. Introspection will get you nowhere. A view of Christ and the prayer to be more like him is what's going to get you along. And you even see it humanly. I had a, uh, maybe I've told you this already, I don't know, I don't maybe think so. Um, We had uh, our first baby on the last day of school at GCA and so all summer I had I was with that baby and doing whatever trying to get used to having a little boy baby and that next September when I came back to class after about the third day of class, one of the seniors who'd been a junior, uh, kind of a bold kid, <laughs> sitting up front, held up her hand, looking bemused, and she said, Mr. Haluska, you're different. You're not like you were. And then there was a kind of a pause, and she said, you're nice. and I said yeah maybe (laughs) I didn't I didn't make myself nice by manipulating my brain cells like silly putty I was changed by beholding that baby and I became a little more like Christ, beholding that baby. An earlier thing like that happened. A friend of mine from PUC, I was newly baptized. He, he, uh, so we, we used to eat lunch together every Wednesday. And he said, one Wednesday, he said, you know, you're different. You're not sarcastic anymore. Your tongue doesn't have the, the, the sharp edge that it used to. What's going on? And I said, well, I've met a girl, <laughs> And I discovered that she flicked on the safety catch to my temper. And I was never angry with her. And I was never sarcastic around her. Once again, it was a relationship brought by Christ. Then, of course, naturally, I married her. So that was a good thing. Um, The point is, we become changed by getting outside of ourselves. And it can be the girl that God has, you know, the spouse that God has ordained for us. It can be the baby who comes into the home. All of these are God's ways of of changing us because they get us out of ourselves and that relationship changes our heads without our knowing it. Study your Bible every day. Get to know Christ closer and closer and closer and you will become changed as I have. I'm not who I was 10 years ago. And the reason is I have gotten closer to Christ. I'm better than I was. Thank you, Jesus. But that's the way. Know thyself. Uh-uh. And here's what he says. I, though I were perfect, I wouldn't know my soul. That's right. I can't figure myself out. Neither can you. You want to be a better person? Get a grip on Christ. Look at him. There's another big line here. Down in 32. Really important. Chapter 9, 32. For he is not a man as I am that I should answer him and that we should come together in judgment. It is impossible to take God to trial. Ludicrous. Bonkers. Why? Because a trial is a process during which we figure out whether someone has broken the law. What's the problem then with taking God to trial? He is the law. The law law is nothing more than an expression of his character. Ten Commandments and all that they imply. Expression of God's character. So it's like during the time of Henry VIII, how long was the king's foot? How long was Henry VIII's foot? Somebody knows, knows some English history. It was exactly one foot long. And when Elizabeth came along, she had a smaller foot. How long was her foot? Exactly one foot long. Every time they changed kings, f- the, the size of a foot changed. How would you like to have that situation? When they wrote about a foot one time, and then 50 years later they talked about a foot, they were talking about a different distance, different feet. That's God. You could not, of course, it would be ludicrous, but you could not take Henry the to trial and say his foot is not a foot long. Yes, it is, by definition. Now well, that's a trivial example, but God is the law itself. It is utterly impossible to take God to trial as having broken the law to say that he's been unfair is just another way to say he's broken the law this means the same thing which means that this whole scenario God comes to the 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 heavenly courts and puts I'm sorry Satan comes to the heavenly courts and puts God on trial that's impossible There's no such thing as putting God on trial. That means the great controversy is impossible. And yet it happens. And yet that satanic being comes daily to accuse God. How can a manifest absurdity be possible? Through grace. Grace allows the trial to go on before the universe. Grace allows Satan to come forward and accuse God. The great controversy to which we contribute on one side or the other yes impossibly absurd but allowed and happening because of grace. The very fact that there is a great controversy is a miracle given the fact that God's the law he can't be acting contrary to the law see the point in other words people some people say that, that the Iliad and the Odyssey are more profound than the, than the Bible and the book of Job ridiculous we have just come to the bottom of our understanding and there's there's a whole lot more there we've come to the ultimate absurdity which is actually the ultimate blessing because this impossible trial is being allowed to continue and our salvation is tied up in the great controversy it's a wonderful gift completely impossible and yet happening And blessing us right now. You can't take God to trial. Well, he goes on. And finally, in chapter 12, I think that's where we'll go next. Yeah. Job, in my theory, returns to sarcasm and says, no doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. He's being sarcastic, in my view, again. The the plea didn't work. Zophar comes back, says some things. And then in chapter 13, we just have time for this. Chapter thirteen, fifteen. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. To me, that is one of the most important texts in the Bible, but certainly in the book of Job. Chapter 13, verse 15. And I should tell you there's a problem text because the original doesn't read that way. The original, as it's come down to us, reads, God will slay me, I have no hope. That's the original. But no Bible translation takes that. The Masoretes didn't believe it. The ones that copied the Bible so carefully, they didn't believe it because the difference between God will slay me I have no hope and though he slay me yet will I trust in him the difference is one little dot in the text one little dot makes all that difference and the Masoretes decided they, they, they left it the, the original text reads as I told you but They decided that this was an error. And so they put a commentary that said, we think that dot is a fly speck and and not an original part of the writing. And the Bible translators have all gone with the Masoretes and have said, okay. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain my own ways before him. Two things to say about that. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. When I first found out I had cancer uh, it was quite a blow and we couldn't we couldn't seem to get uh, an operation we went we were told you have very fast cancer you're going to have to cut it out right now went to Johns Hopkins University and after a month or two they said we're not going to operate on you you're too old and so my wife and I stood there wondering what will we do and we wept together for about three minutes and then we prayed and I remembered this text though he slay me yet will I trust in him my life is his and what happened after that was that Uh, after that prayer we made one phone call to a friend. (coughs) The next day I found myself with a pickup appointment with one of the busiest radiation oncologists in Chattanooga. I came in, they said you just had a cancellation you're going in and everything worked from there until I wound up at Vanderbilt University getting my uh, uh, surgery. And as I continue to pray about this and continue now, God gets to kill me anytime He wants to. Right? He brought me here, He can check me out. But I've decided to trust Him. But I will maintain my own ways before Him. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to say, if I'm feeling angry at God, I'm not going to say, oh, I love you, it's all okay. I'm going to say, I'm angry at you today. That has not happened yet. It may. God cannot use a liar. When I went to PUC, as a non-Adventist, they asked me, have I told you this? Do you drink? Etc. cetera. Do you attend movies? Big deal then. I kept answering yes to a bunch of these questions. I thought, I didn't know much about God, but I thought he can't use a liar. That year they, took, they, they turned away 200 Seventh-day Adventists they didn't have room for and accepted me. Despite what I had written, the truth. But I will maintain my own way before him. I will not lie to him. I will not lie to anybody else. Make sense? Thank you, Lord Jesus